The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, this is just a friendly reminder to make sure that you are registered to vote for the upcoming elections this November. Please text the word voter to 26797 to check your registration. You will also receive reminders for all local, state, and federal elections and your polling locations. And don't forget to follow I Am a Voter for more civic engagement opportunities. That's voter to 26797. Hi, this is Deborah Messing. And I am Mandana Dayani. When we started this podcast, our goal was to highlight 20 dissenters each season. And then we were presented with the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to interview someone whose story has profoundly affected both of us. So this episode is one that we feel deserves your utmost respect and attention, and we are going to break from our usual format. Today we speak with Dr. Edith Eva Eager, a 93-year-old survivor of the Holocaust, who has used her painful experiences as a gift to us all. Her groundbreaking and innovative books and teachings in psychology have taught us how to heal and forgive. Oprah said she too was forever changed by meeting Dr. Eager. Anti-Semitism is at an alarming high in the United States and around the world. Deborah and I have both been victims of it. I had to flee my home country because of it. It is real, it is here, and Dr. Eager is living proof of the unspeakable horror it can lead to when left unchecked. We know this is going to be a really difficult episode to listen to, but that is what makes it even more important. If the dissenters has taught us anything, it's that we cannot turn away from what is hard or what makes us uncomfortable. If anything, it is what we should charge toward so we can learn it, understand it, and fight it. That is our power as a community and our responsibility to each other. Dr. Eager's story is inspiring and powerful. She is positive and beautiful and a gift to us all. And now, it is our greatest honor to introduce you to Dr. Edith Eager, the healing survivor. Dr. Eager, this is truly one of the most important things that we've ever done in our lives. And we're so proud to have this opportunity to share your beautiful words and light with the world. Thank you so much. Dr. Eager, you look very beautiful and so fashionable. Oh, thank you. I am. I am. Uh, they call me sometimes the Escada girl. <laughs> oh, so, fantastic. Uh, that's, uh, this is the Escada girl, yes. I love that so much. Dr. Edith Eager, your story is so incredibly powerful. We have spent the last few weeks reading your books, listening to your talks, and we are so moved and so honored and so humbled to have this opportunity to hear it firsthand. So I would like to hopefully uh, be a good guide to everyone and begin how they are connected to themselves because what you think, you create. Well, I'm starting at the beginning in 1927, September 29th. I'm going to be 93 years old. And people ask me, how long did it take you to write a book? And my answer is, a whole life. I was born into a very, very talented family. My parents had two beautiful daughters. One of them played the piano, Magda, and Clara was a child prodigy, and my parents wanted a son. And as you know, when I came along, I think uh, uh, my parents really wanted a son. And I don't know if you felt that maybe you were coming to a family and uh, you were supposed to be a son, but I know that uh, 
my two sisters were singing songs about me because I became cross-eyed when I was three years old, that I'm so ugly and puny, and they blindfolded me when they took me for a walk so people wouldn't see what an ugly sister I am. Today, when I go to school, I beg children not to allow anyone to define who you are because you're beautiful. And when we plant a seed, we have to watch it grow. So I am really empowering the young people because they are the future. Dr. Edith Eager was born on September 29th, 1927 in Slovakia, which is on the border of Czechoslovakia and Hungary. Her father was a tailor and her mother was a homemaker. She grew up in the shadow of her two older sisters, Clara, a child prodigy in violin, and her other sister, Magda, a brilliant pianist. Edith began ballet school when she was four years old and in 1944 was selected for the Hungarian Olympic gymnastics team. She was later told by her trainer that they could not train her anymore because she is Jewish. At the time, it was the most devastating blow of her life, not knowing all the devastation that was to come. I went to a Jewish school, and when I came out, young people were spitting at me and called me a Christ killer. That was before Hitler. Things began to get worse and worse until March 1944, when the Germans marched into her hometown. And on one cold morning, the Jews of Kassa were rounded up and imprisoned in an old brick factory on the edge of town. A couple of weeks later, Edith, Magda, and their parents were loaded into a cattle train, bound for Auschwitz. Edith was 16 years old at the time. Her sister, Clara, was already studying in Budapest and was not captured with the rest of the family. She would never see her boyfriend, Eric, again, or the only life she had known until then. I tell you what happened. We had Passover, Mm -hmm. and my father got up and kissed our heads. And then we were picked up that morning. I did have a boyfriend, and I have his picture in my office at home, so I can't give it to you. But before I was put on that cattle car, he said to me, I'll never forget your eyes and your hands. So in Auschwitz, I would go to everyone, tell me about my eyes, tell me about my hands. Because I said to myself, if I survive today, then tomorrow... I'm going to meet with my boyfriend. And that's what kept me alive. On the dark train ride, her mother offers a piece of wisdom. Just remember, no one can take away from you what you've put in your mind. When they arrived at Auschwitz, Edith's father was herded away with the men. When they appeared before the infamous Dr. Joseph Mengele, known as the Angel of Death, they were directed to be separated into different lines anyone under 14 or over 40 to a different line. She followed her mom and the angel of death grabs her, looks her in the eye and says, you're going to see your mother very soon. She's just going to take a shower. Dr. Eager shared how the recent separation of migrant children at the border triggered terrible nightmares and memories of this moment. When I saw children being separated at the border, I had terrible nightmares remembering when my mother was told to go this way. 
I followed my mother, and this guy told me that I'm going to see my mother very soon. She's just going to take a shower. And promptly I was on the other side, which meant life. So you see, uh, many things trigger today for me the time when everything was taken away from me. And there I was. I was with this couple, and I asked, where, when will I see my mother? She pointed at the chimney, and fire was coming out of the chimney. And she said, your mother is burning there. Are you better talk about her in past tense? And my sister Magda hugged me, and she said, the spirit never dies. Dr. Eager described how the advice of her mother was so formative for her throughout these horrific experiences. Edith later said, I put thoughts in my mind that would help me survive. I would think, if I could survive today, then tomorrow I will be free. When we were in the cattle car, you see, I became my mother's babysitter because my father was playing billiards and cars on weekends and I took care of my mother, and she introduced me to Gone with the Wind, and I was hoping uh, I'm going to see Terra, and I did. And so my mother and I had a very, very, very uh, different relationship, and uh, she talked to me about the opera. She was very cultured, but when we were in a cattle car, she hugged me, and she said, we don't know where we're going. We don't know what's going to happen, honey. Just remember, no one can take away from you what you put here in your own mind. This statement became even more poignant on Edith's first night in Auschwitz, when she was forced to dance for the SS officer, Joseph Mengele. He was the man responsible for killing her mother and many of the 1.1 million people murdered at the Auschwitz concentration camp. She shared the memory of this night, how her mother's words guided her, and as she said, from within this private refuge, I willed my arms to lift and my legs to twirl. I summoned the strength to dance for my life. You know, he came to the barracks that night and he wanted to be entertained. And my friends, even my school teacher from the Jewish school was there. Somehow she made it. See, because everybody over 40 and under 14, I don't know how, but she made it. She was the one who really kept us together and told us not to ever give up. And so they just threw me in front of him and he says, dance for me. And I closed my eyes and I pretended that the music was Tchaikovsky and I was dancing the Romeo and Juliet at the Budapest Opera House. It is just incredible that as a teenager, she was able to save herself, that with her love of ballet and her imagination, she found the will to survive, and how she learned of her own power to choose her actions, how she responds to others, and how she lets them affect her. And when I finished dancing, he gave me a piece of bread. You see, I had a choice then, as you have a choice now. I could have eaten up that bread, but thank God, I climbed up, I was on the top, and I shared my bread with the girls. 
And when I was in a death march going in Austria from Mauthausen to Gunskirchen, if you stopped, you were shot right away. And I began to slow down. And the girls that I shared the bread with, they came and formed a chair with their arms. Can you picture that? Mm -hmm. And they carried me so I wouldn't die. These early lessons taught Dr. Eager that cooperation was the key to the game. By sharing her bread with others, they later saved her life when her legs gave out on her death march. They lifted her up and carried her to safety. All we had was each other. We had to go beyond the me, 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 because we had to form a family of inmates. Because if you gave up, it was already in your face, knowing we knew that that person is going to die. We knew it exactly. Her spirit continued to guide her. In her books, she writes about being severely beaten, knowing it would be much easier to die than to live. She wrote, in Auschwitz, you couldn't fight because if you touched the guard, you were shot. You couldn't flee because if you touched the barbed wires, you were electrocuted. When you took a shower, we didn't know whether gas is coming out or water. But they could torture me and they could beat me, but they could never murder my spirit. Even though I was told every day, I'm never going to get out of here alive. They could throw me in a gas chamber. We never knew four o'clock in the morning how the day is going to be, whether we're going to be here next day. When we took a shower, we didn't know whether gas is going to come out or water is going to come out. What was so painful as we listened to Edith's story is the realization that through this experience, she had to abandon a life almost lived, of the dream she had, being 16 and enjoying high school, her first love and boyfriend, Eric, Olympics, gymnastics, and a love of fashion. There was a quote that was so powerful we'd like to share. During the long, terrible days and nights in prison, I'd choose what to hold in my mind. I'd think of my boyfriend, Eric, how our romance kindled at a time of war, how we'd go picnicking by the river, eating my mother's delicious fried chicken and potato salad, planning our future. I'd think of dancing with him in the dress my father had made just before we were forced out of our home, how I tested the dress to make sure I could dance in it, to make sure the skirt twirled how Eric's hands rested against the thin suede belt at my waist. I'd think of the last words he said to me as he watched my transport leave the brick factory. I'll never forget your eyes. I'll never forget your hands. And I'd picture our reunion, how we would melt into each other's arms with joy and relief. These thoughts were like a candle I held through the very darkest hours and months. It's not that daydreaming about Eric erased the horror. It didn't bring back my parents or ease the pain of their deaths or the looming threat of my own. But thinking of him helped me see past where I was, to envision a tomorrow that included my beloved, to keep starvation and torture in perspective. I was living through hell on earth, and it was temporary. If it was temporary, it could be survived. Some of you may not be as familiar with what Auschwitz is, so let's pause for one second and learn together. 
The Auschwitz concentration camp was a complex of 40 concentration and extermination camps operated by Nazi Germany and occupied Poland during the Holocaust of World War II. These camps became a major site of the Nazis' final solution to the Jewish question, which called for the genocide of Jews. Of the 1.3 million people sent to Auschwitz, 1.1 million died. The death toll includes 960,000 Jews, 74,000 non-Jewish Poles, 21,000 Roma, 15,000 Soviet prisoners of war, and up to 15,000 other prisoners. Those not gassed died of starvation, disease, individual executions, or medical experiments. The Soviet army liberated the Auschwitz concentration camp in Poland on January 27, 1945. About 7,000 prisoners were in the camp when the Soviets arrived. A total of approximately 6 million Jews were murdered during the Holocaust. We asked Dr. Eager to describe Auschwitz. Auschwitz was hell. There is no way, any other way, because first of all, they took my blood many times. And I remember asking, I spoke German fluently, why do you take my blood? And guess what he said? I'm taking your blood to aid the German soldiers so we can win the war and take over the world, especially America. I couldn't change the stimulus, but I could change the response. I couldn't yank my arm away because I may have not been here today, but I said to myself, what a stupid idiot you are. With my blood, you're going to win the war? So the humor, not sarcasm or cynicism, but some kind of a humor had to be that no one, no Nazi could ever murder that. I think it's important to say that even today, unfortunately, we are experiencing genocide, but never in a history of mankind such a scientific and systematic annihilation of people existed, and they called it the final solution. When 15 highly educated people decided at the end of the day, celebrating that they can put 30,000 Jews in the oven in one day. We asked Dr. Eager, given her personal experience there and later as a therapist, what she believes led to the creation of the camps. I think ultimately when a country suffers economically, when people are hungry, instead of dealing with what is really going on, they go for a scapegoat. And that's what happened that day. So you're not killing people. You're killing gooks and kikes and you make them subhuman. Of course. And that's, a, a, that's an unfortunate way that uh, you become less than and they become better than. And that's why I'm saying you have to question authority rather than blindly adhere to authority. And I'm very vocal about that, especially for young children, yes. because you were not born to hate. You were taught. Hungarian Jews had been among the last in Europe to be deported to death camps. 
And after eight months in Auschwitz, Edith and Magda were evacuated and marched from Poland through Germany to Austria to perform slave labor in factories. In November 1944, Edith and Magda were assigned to ride on top of the German trains carrying weapons and ammunition because the Nazis hoped that the striped uniforms would deter British bombers. Edith jumped off the train and ran into the forest, but when she realized Magda wasn't with her, she ran back towards the bombing to help her sister, who had hurt herself from the jump. Out of 2,000 famished people who marched, only 100 survived. We were wearing striped uniforms because they thought the British wouldn't bomb, but they bombed anyway. And many girls died around me. When I arrived in Gunskirchen, cannibalism broke out. I don't talk to kids about that much at all. I don't want them to have nightmares. But it was then when I begged God to help me. And God told me to look down and I had grass to eat. <gasps> so I can't, I can't is not in my vocabulary. I can't means I'm helpless. And I remember even then choosing one blade of grass over and against the other. So don't tell me you can't do that. Yes, you can. Overworked and malnutritioned, Edith's weight slipped to only 70 pounds. She lost consciousness. In May 1945, when the American army liberated Gunskirchen camp, a young American soldier noticed her hand moving amongst a number of dead bodies. He quickly sought medical help and brought her and her sister back from near death from a pile of bodies in an Austrian forest. Eager had five types of typhoid fever, pneumonia, pleurisy, and a broken back, a cause of her lifelong struggle with scoliosis. In the hospital, she became suicidal. She recounts, all I could tell you was that it was quite dark. I just saw kinds of darkness and we didn't know who's alive and who's not alive. I was in a very bad state. I was already among the dead. And then I looked up and it was a man. I saw tears in his eyes and M&Ms in his hand. I don't know exactly. All I know that it is in the Red Cross that I was liberated May 4th, mm-hmm. 1945 in Gunskirchen, Austria. My daughter told me now they picked up some literature from the Nazis, and my name is there, that I was liberated in Gunskirchen, Austria. And uh, it's in the archives. It's in the archives. In the hospital, she did not know the fate of her family or how to process what had happened to her. Within a year, she was married to Bella Eager, whom she met in the hospital. He too had lost his family, but survived in the mountains, joining the partisan resistance. On their honeymoon, she became pregnant against the advice of doctors who believed she was too weak with her daughter, Marianne, who was born a healthy baby. Edith and Magda finally reunited with their other sister, Clara. Clara had gone to the German consulate in search of her parents and was thrown into a camp to be rescued later by her Christian professor. Later on, when the communists came to power in Czechoslovakia, Edith's husband was jailed. Immediately, she bribed the warden and smuggled her husband and infant daughter to the United States. 
1949, she arrived in America, poor, unable to pay the $6 to get off the boat. The Red Cross paid the fee, and Edith started a new life. She had two more children. Her husband qualified as an accountant, and in her late 30s, Edith learned enough English to begin studying psychology at the University of Texas, El Paso. She was committed to helping others heal, but she was still running from the past, denying her grief and trauma, minimizing and pretending, chasing achievements to make up for all that she had lost. She worked incredibly hard to assimilate, to not stand out or ever ruffle any feathers. I didn't have the verbal capacity, and I didn't want people to look at us as being different and we those. I just wanted to be you. I wanted to be a good Yankee doodle dandy, and I wanted to assimilate. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I didn't realize that uh, there is another way. So I went completely underground. It was so powerful to hear from Edith how neither she nor Magda talked about what had happened, not to each other or anyone else, not even their children. Denial was their shield. They felt that the more securely they locked their past away, the safer they were. That all changed for Edith when a fellow student gave a copy of Viktor Frankl's book, Man Searching for Meaning. Frankl was a prisoner at Auschwitz at the same time as Edith, and his writing became the inspiration for her philosophy as a therapist and her first book, The Choice. I don't think The Choice would have existed without Man's Search for Meaning. I think it's really the female version of Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was in his studies in Auschwitz. He was a medical doctor. And when we met, he told me that he closed his eyes and he imagined that he's in a Vienna lecture hall lecturing about the psychology of the concentration camp. You're not grieving over what happened, but what didn't happen. And I write about my granddaughter when she was 16 and asked me to buy her a dress so she can go to the dance at the bishop school in La Jolla. And when I came home, I cried out of nowhere. And I didn't understand what am I crying about? Not realizing that I didn't cry because... Lindsay went to a dance. I cried because I never went to a dance. And that's when I really developed my theory of grieving, feeling, and healing because you can't do anything unless you feel the feelings. So that is grieving, feeling, and healing. And Viktor Frankl was my mentor, my wonderful young 75-year-old who was climbing mountains and learning how to fly the airplanes. And I met him in San Diego where he was lecturing at the International University. Slowly and cautiously, Edith started to talk about the Holocaust and examine her experience, intent on learning how we survive trauma and what transforms a victim into a survivor. She got an MA, a PhD, then earned her license to practice. Specializing in post-traumatic stress, Edith objects to calling it a disorder as she believes it's a common and natural response to trauma. She began working with the American military, 
Edith also shares how her return later in life to Auschwitz was so critical to her healing. She wrote, Until I returned, I was my own worst enemy. I not only had survivor's guilt, I had survivor's shame. I didn't need a Hitler out there. I had a Hitler in me telling me I was unworthy, that I didn't deserve to survive. On that day, I allowed myself to be human, not superhuman and not subhuman. But unless we acknowledge that we cannot change the past, we cannot really heal and live life. For that, she had to go back to the lion's den and look at the place where her mother was murdered, where she was so close to death every day. And that is what made me go back to Auschwitz when I was working with Vietnam veterans. Yes. And, and I felt like an imposter because I went to school and I went to school. But then I realized I cannot take them further than I have gone myself. Yes. And I decided to go back to Auschwitz to honor my mother. And when I called my sister Magda and told her that I never went to a funeral, we lost our family, and I asked her to join me, and she told me, I am a masochist, I'm an idiot, and she didn't want to hear about it. Mm -hmm. So we went through the same experience, right. different response. Right. Aside from the incredible privilege of meeting Dr. Eager, hearing and sharing her story, having the opportunity to honor her heroic work and legacy, this conversation is also so important to us because it is a critical time to address anti-Semitism in the United States and around the world. And in order to combat anti-Semitism, we must first understand it. The Anti-Defamation League just said that violence against Jews is at historic levels. And just last year reported more incidents than any year since they began tracking it over four decades ago. A man walked into a Pittsburgh synagogue and murdered 11 people, targeting the organization Hyas. Signs are posted all over the world blaming Jews for COVID. Very high-profile celebrities and athletes such as Ice Cube have recently posted dehumanizing anti-Semitic tropes. And figures like Louis Farrakhan continue to spew Jewish tropes, making them targets of many of the accusations that fueled Nazi Germany. And there is the growing emboldenment of Nazis around the world through the internet that can in no way be regulated. This is against a backdrop in which two-thirds of American millennials surveyed in a recent poll cannot even identify what Auschwitz is. The Holocaust is not required to be taught in all schools, and there are very few survivors remaining who can provide firsthand accounts. Anti-Semitic tropes are becoming more and more common, and if we are going to fight them, we must first be able to identify them. The Anti-Defamation League describes anti-Semitic tropes as Jews have too much power. Jews are disloyal. Jews are greedy. Jews killed Jesus. Jews use Christian blood for religious rituals. Jews are globalists. The Holocaust did not happen. Anti-Zionism or the delegitimization of Israel. We want to really learn from history and really know that prejudice means to prejudge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. See, when I came to America in 1949, I did not speak a word of English. I didn't have six dollars to get off the boat. And I worked in a factory called Gerber and Gerber. 
I got seven cents per dozen cutting of threads of boxer shorts. I became the breadwinner because my late husband ended up in a TB hospital. Oh, my God. And I had a little girl who was two years old. So I worked as I fast as I could. But when I went to the bathroom, I tried to keep it in as long as I could so I wouldn't lose the time. But one of them said colored. Imagine how I felt after Nazi Germany and communist Russia and I come to America and I see prejudice, prejudge. When I was liberated by a man of color, I didn't know somebody was holding my hand and I looked up and I saw tears in the eyes and M&Ms in the hand. So what I did, I approached the women of color and I joined the NAACP and I ended up marching for Martin Luther King. So you see, love is not what you feel, it's what you do. And that's why I want to congratulate you that you're not just sitting around and uh, crying about how awful things are. It's what am I doing in my very limited capacity. Of course. We're limited. We're not limitless. The Auschwitz Museum, in light of the child separation at the U.S.-Mexico border by the current Trump administration, tweeted, When we look at Auschwitz, we see the end of the process. It's important to remember that the Holocaust actually did not start from gas chambers. This hatred gradually developed from words stereotypes, and prejudice through legal exclusion, dehumanization, and escalating violence. It is so critical that we remember where dehumanization can lead. In light of the child separation policy, Dr. Eager described having nightmares. When she saw parents being separated from their children, she kept picturing herself being separated from her mother. She has never forgotten the pain, and these children will never forget their pain. Hatred brings hatred, violence brings violence, and I, I hope we're going to be for uniting and celebrating every moment of life. These are dangerous times, and the question is, what have you done that worked? And I think children don't do what we say, they do what they see. Yes. So you want to really model the kind of behavior Mm -hmm. that you accept them as being no more and no less than human beings. We asked Dr. Eager about her thoughts on the growing white supremacist Nazi groups in the United States and around the world. Unfortunately, you cannot convince them otherwise. They believe that the Jews will ultimately uh, find Jesus and, and the Jews are going to really um, find a way uh, through Christianity. And I think it's, uh, it's very important to realize that ignorance is really pushing us, hopefully, hopefully, not to argue with these people. Because the white supremacy group is growing in America. I'm very sad about that. 
if the white supremacy group shows up, I beg people not to show up. Let them talk to an empty room. Unfortunately, America has the black pages of history. When people were put on a tree and shot to death because of their color. Racism. Yeah. So I owe it to my parents today. Yeah. I owe it to my parents to let people know what happened. I owe it to my parents as long as I live, especially in the military and in, in schools where they never heard about the Holocaust. And when they hear that the Holocaust didn't exist, all I ask them to read Plato's Republic. And he said, you have to think of a lie. It has to be a big one. And then you repeat it, repeat it, until people believe it. So I think that our biggest enemy is ignorance. On this podcast, we focus on people who dissent, who stand up to injustice or challenge the status quo. It feels as though for Dr. Eager, her dissent has been living a full and happy life. She spent the majority of her life as a psychotherapist in private practice and working with military veterans suffering PTSD, working to inspire and uplift that this was her choice. So it's important to look for freedom and not to be a prisoner of the past. I cannot change the past. If you can really realize that guilt, and then you don't live in a present. And that's why we call it a present. Another moment that completely floored both of us was listening to Dr. Eager describe a time when she had to come face to face with an anti-Semitic and racist patient, triggered by the language that still haunts her. And I remember when I took care of a young boy who was part of the David Koresh, a white mm. supremacy group. You know, you read about yeah, him, right? Yes. That's what uh, he told me, uh, that he's going to kill all the Jews yes. and all the, using the N-word mm -hmm. and all the chinkos and all the Mexicans. And, and if I would have reacted, I would have dragged him in a corner. I would have stepped on him. She said in that moment, she had to confront her own prejudice against the person, her anger toward their hatred. She remembered thinking, I'm not a bigot. I'm a Holocaust survivor and an immigrant. I lost my parents to hate. I used the, quote, colored bathroom at the factory in Baltimore in solidarity with my African-American co-workers. I marched for civil rights with Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. I am not a bigot. And she then had to face her own feelings and make a choice. Well, I don't think people come to me, they're sent to me. Wow. So I spoke to them and God told me to find the bigot in me. And this is what I told God, I'm not the bigot because and all the things that I've done. And then I realized that there is a bigot in every one of us. And it was up to me to create an environment for that boy who joined David Koresh who was taught how to hate me. And I changed the hatred into pity. And that's what I was able to discover in Auschwitz as well. So he never knew my past. Wow. 
In the fall of 2017, at the age of 90, Dr. Eager's memoir, Their Choice, Embrace the Possible, was published. In her book, she discussed how working with and learning from her patients' perspectives has transformed her life. Her colleague and friend, Philip Zimbardo, wrote in the foreword, her goal is nothing less than to help each of us to escape the prisons of our own minds. It is Edith's mission to help us realize that just as we can act as our jailers, we can also be our own liberators. And that's why I beg today people to liberate yourself from the biggest concentration camp that is in your own mind and the key is in your pocket. The more dependency, the more depression. The more you wait for someone to make you happy, you're never going to be happy. I can guarantee you that. One very important theme throughout The Choice and her second book, The Gift, was that our painful experiences are not a liability, but a gift. They give us perspective and meaning, an opportunity to find our unique purpose and our strength. I'm not afraid to die. I'm going to be happy. I'm not asking, you know, what I could have done or why did this happen. I'm going to be so happy that I lived a life and did everything in my power to see to it that we can, we can unite and we can empower each other that you can be you and I can be I. Dr. Eager also speaks about the importance of compassion and empathy, that there is no hierarchy of pain, how freedom is a lifetime practice a choice we get to make again and again each day. That freedom requires hope, which she defines in two ways. The awareness that suffering, however terrible, is temporary, and the curiosity to discover what happens next. She says, hope allows us to live in the present instead of the past and to unlock the doors of our mental prisons. It's something we do for ourselves so we're no longer victims or prisoners of the past, so we can stop carrying a burden that harbors nothing but pain. We asked how her patients respond to the knowledge of her personal experience. When a woman tells me today, I was sexually abused, but I don't want to tell you because you were in Auschwitz. So my answer to her was, I knew the enemy and you didn't. So it's, again, very important not to compare who suffered yes. more. We're not doing that. But when you suffer, you become stronger. Today, Dr. Eager has a clinical practice in La Jolla, California. On September 15th, 2020, at the age of 93, she will publish her second book, The Gift, 12 Lessons to Save Your Life. In light of our podcast, we asked her about her thoughts on activism. If you want to save the world, I think everything begins with you. And I hope to be a good role model. There was a passage in her book. If we decide something's hopeless or impossible, it will be. If we take action, who knows what we might manifest? Hope is curiosity writ large, a willingness to cultivate within yourself whatever kindles light and to shine that light into the darkest places. Hope is the boldest act of imagination I know. Yeah, I think, I think what helped me to survive in Auschwitz is curiosity. 
I always wanted to know what's going to happen next. So take that little eight-year-old with you and see what you can discover from your little children, how they somehow can make something out of nothing and how they can build something and know that the best thing for your child is a happy marriage. That as long as I live, I'm going to do everything prior to see to it that your children and grandchildren and my great-grandsons, I have seven of those, great-grandsons will never ever experience. And when I go to their home, my book is on their living room table. So I I think that's the biggest gift that I could give. It was so beautiful in her book, The Gift, how she spoke about still speaking to her parents to show them how rich and full her life is. That she still thinks of her father when she gets dressed, proud of her impeccable taste, all of which she ties to the gift of life. That if you can concentrate not on what you lost, but on what is left, the choice to live every moment as a gift. We wanted to conclude with some passages from the gift. Life, even with its inevitable trauma, pain, grief, misery, and death, is a gift. A gift we sabotage when we imprison ourselves in our fears of punishment, failure, and abandonment, in our need for approval, in shame and blame, in superiority and inferiority, in our need for power and control. To celebrate the gift of life is to find the gift in everything that happens, even the parts that are difficult, that we're not sure we can survive. To celebrate life, period to live with joy, love, and passion. So I can turn all the lessons I learned in hell into a gift I offer you now, the opportunity to decide what kind of life you want to have, to discover the untapped potential lying in the shadows, to reveal and reclaim who you really are. Honey, may you also choose to give up the prison and do the work to be free to find in your suffering your own life lessons, to choose which legacy the world inherits, to hand down the pain or to pass on the gift. Oh, that is so beautiful. You wrote it. (laughs) Uh, This was the best interview ever. Uh, (laughs) You're precious little women. You're so, so very precious. And uh, you're not idealistic. You are realistic. And that is really important that we can dream, but don't confuse your dreams with reality, your romanticism. You are real. You see what is going on and wondering what you can do with your very limited capacity to see to it that we can be hopefully good role models and know how to practice and recognize that love conquers all. And of course, we couldn't let her go without asking if she still dances. Oh, I, I love dancing. I'm always dancing, especially with my patient, because I'm a guide from darkness to light. We want to finish this episode with a plea. We are asking you all to be an ally against anti-Semitism. It is pervasive, it is growing, and it is scary. 
the United States Department of Homeland Security just labeled white supremacists as the most persistent and lethal threat in our country. It is our collective responsibility to share these stories and to ensure that the atrocities of our past are not forgotten, nor are they repeated. I left my home at the age of five because I could no longer safely live in my homeland as a Jew. Deborah was traumatized by swastikas in her neighborhood as a child. These stories are much more common than you know, and we all know where this road leads us. But for today, let's honor the life and the courage of this hero, of a woman who against all odds survived and thrived, who defeated hate with love, and who used her light to guide us all. Yevarachecha Hashem v'yishmarecha. Amen. We are Deborah Messing and Mandana Dayani, and you have been listening to The Dissenters. Thank you all so much for tuning in. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review. You can go to thedissenters.com to see the full list of our 20 dissenters. We love seeing the support on social, so please tag us at the dissenters, at the real Deborah Messing, at Mandana Dayani. And please continue sending us suggestions for badass dissenters we should feature. Please tune in next Thursday to meet our next brilliant dissenter. This show is produced by me, Deborah Messing, Mandana Dayani, Erica First, and Dear Media. Our music was written by Brady Cohen, and images were shot by Justin Campbell.